This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on the show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for the backstory, where Alex Cortez dives into names and brands we know, but whose backstories we don't know. Take it away, Alex. A lot of America knows her by her title, Secretary of Education. But we don't really know her, the person, and Holland, Michigan native, Betsy DeVos. My dad grew up in a home where he lost his dad when he was young. Um, My dad was 12 when my grandpa died at 36 from a heart attack. My dad was the older of two brothers. He had an older sister, but he was right there in the middle and the oldest son, and he went right to work to help earn money to support their family. My grandmother was too proud to take any help from the church, so she worked very hard too. She made curtains, draperies, for people and my dad was delivering cars back and forth to Detroit when he was, I think, 14 years old. There wasn't a driving age at that time. So he started working at 13 and I don't recall what he did as his first job, but he was driving cars back and forth for Ven, I think it was Venheisen, uh, Bill Venheisen was the dealership owner and that was, he was a very early mentor for my dad. My mom's family, her parents moved when they were teenagers. From the Netherlands. They came as single in, you know, people. My grandmother's family came when my grandma and her sisters were quite young. My grandpa came on his own. I think he was 15 when his family sent him to the U.S. with, you know, one little suitcase and uh, a note about an uncle that he had to go find to go live with. So they both were quite young when they when they started in Holland, Michigan. My mom grew up in a above the seed store that my grandparents ran together. And then they moved out on Lake Makatawa when my mom was fairly young. And my grandpa had greenhouses and a flower shop. And I remember going to the flower shop as a girl. It was fun. The first little home we lived in, it's still there. I, I see it every summer in Holland, a little red house on the corner where my younger sister and I, uh, we lived until, I think we were, I I was just about four when we moved, but I remember a swing set in the backyard and standing on the crossbars of it one day and uh, calling through to my sister on the other end and getting stung by a bee on my cheek, which didn't feel particularly good, but I I can still, I, I still picture that pretty clearly. So I was pretty young, but I, that was a very vivid memory. My first job was when I was in junior high, sixth or seventh grade. I worked at my uncle's greenhouse. So my uncle took over the greenhouse from my grandfather and we, I went there after school with, and worked with my cousins. We transplanted seedling plants into the flats that you buy at the you know, Lowe's or Menards or whatever in the summer to go plant in your yard. We planted the seedlings into the larger packs and. It was a piecework, so we were paid by the flat. So I think we got, for some flats, it was 10 cents a flat. 
for another, uh, if they had a higher number of plants in them, then it was 12 cents a flat. If you had a really dense flat, it was 15 cents a flat. So I didn't earn a lot after school doing that, but I, it was, it was a, a good way to earn money initially. I wanted to do it, yes. It, I, I loved earning extra money. My um, dad's factory when so he invented the lighted sun visor for vehicles. My mom, I think he and my mom talked about, you know, problems in cars that needed to be solved, and that was a problem. At night when you were going to go somewhere, you could never look at yourself because it was dark. So my dad invented the sun visor with lights next to the mirror, and then you could see yourself at night. But the first summer that the plant was in operation, uh, I was, I think, between 8th and ninth grade, and I became the inspector, packer, and shipper of the sun visors that came off the line that summer. Predictably, with a startup operation, there were occasionally visors that came off with flaws in them, and so I was given great license to become very creative with fixing these flaws so that they could ultimately be shipped to the manufacturer for installation. Um, that was great fun. It sounds pretty crazy to uh, let an eighth grader be an inspector. You do what you need to do with startups. So this was a startup outside of the original company my dad founded, which was a heavy die-cast machine builder. I did not work in the die-cast machine facility. But um, the first startup for the visor plant was just, you know, a handful or a handful and a half of people. And then years later when, let's see, uh, you know, I, I recall there were at the high point probably of my family's involvement, there were six or 7,000 employees. So yeah, it grew, it grew significantly. And it grew beyond just uh, visors, so it was all the interior components of vehicles. And most of us don't really ever think about the thousands of products like this in our daily lives, and that someone had to invent that. Lighted sun visor. So true, you don't think about people who have thought about problems and solving those problems. And often they're problems you don't even know that you have until the solution is there like a lighted sun visor or our iPhones or, or whatever. You, you know, I think many people would really be interested to learn the backstory on products that we use every day. And what a backstory of Betsy DeVos's life. And you know, people forget a startup is just a startup. And you know, when they started that little visor company, there were a few people and and whatever the quote plant was, it was not a plant. It was probably someone's garage or a little 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 space somewhere in town that uh, they rented on the cheap. And ultimately, it became six to seven thousand employees, and so much more than just providing sun visors. More of the backstory of Betsy DeVos's life story, her family story, here on Our American Story.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with Alex Cortez and our continuing series, The Backstory, and with Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos telling the story of the inventor of the lighted sun visor, who just happens to be her dad. My dad died very young. Um, he was uh, scarcely older than I am today, which is very young, by the way. <laughs> uh, my dad first had a heart attack when he was 42, and that was a, a real big wake-up call. Well, his faith was definitely deepened and strengthened in every respect, and he, he noticed God at work much more regularly, and he would call it out and uh, celebrate it. He changed his approach and lifestyle significantly. He ate more healthily, did exercise a little bit more. He wasn't a big exerciser, but he did do that. But importantly, he also um, reoriented his priorities and spent a lot more time with my family. We, we had some really fun times together, traveling to places that I would not have expected to go. And, he really, he really valued that time, and, and I surely did in, in retrospect, too. So, yeah, he died when he was 62. He, uh, he did an unusual thing that day. Um, he had lunch with a bunch of other, uh, others of his colleagues, and as they often did in the, um, you know, lunchroom facility, and normally he would bound up the stairs two steps at a time, but for whatever reason that day, he decided to take the elevator, and I suspect it was because he was not feeling well. And he had a massive heart attack in the elevator and wasn't found until several minutes later when he was already dead. So that was very, very sudden and uh, traumatic for all of my family, for sure. But um, yes, we, then we, we sold the business a couple of years, two and a half years after his death. Um, and that sale did result in a lot of those who had been with the company for many years having, you know, opportunity because of bonuses that our family decided were appropriate and important for all of those who'd been with the company for a long time. And uh, it's been interesting to see and hear about the stories of a whole bunch of different startup businesses that came about as a result of these opportunities that employee, longtime employees of Prince Automotive had had. When I was in high school yet, we went into East Berlin, and that was a, a really um, stark reminder, or I guess a, a, it gave me a really clear picture of the difference between the freedom with which I'd grown up and didn't fully appreciate and those who didn't live with that freedom at all. The, the, the contrasts were so stark, it was amazing. I wish everybody had the opportunity to see and experience something like that today, to know that we don't want to go, ever go in that direction as, as a nation. First of all, you go through a very uh, foreboding no man's land between uh, the West, which was very vibrant, and, and of course, you know, you have to remember geographically, West Berlin was like a little island in the middle of East Germany. And so you'd fly into West Berlin and not really realize the vast expanse surrounding West Berlin that was 
literally decades, like stuck in, uh, you know, decades before. But to go into East Berlin was just a huge stark contrast. I think that the biggest thing that I noticed was, there are two things. First of all, there was almost no color. Everything was gray and brown and drab, uh, including the people's clothing. Um, and second, the tools they were using, it was like walking back in time. We saw men rolling asphalt with a hand roller. And, and just the sort of empty look in a lot of people's faces. I then had an opportunity to spend about five or six days in East Germany when I was a, a German student in college. And that was fascinating. We stayed in a couple of different youth hostels. And again, even, even in the, the uh, cities and towns away from Berlin, while there, there was a little bit more going on because they were cities that had uh, some convening reason, it was, still, it was still like walking back in time. We had to actually talk with them in German because we were there as a German class. And uh, we, had, we had some conversations with uh, students there and um, a, a couple of hosts. But you, you also have to remember it was, it was very closely um, controlled who we could talk with and who we could spend time with. And so the, it wasn't particularly insightful from, from that perspective because there was nobody who was going to really tell it tell it all as to you know how it was like what it was like to be living there um, but you didn't have to be particularly um, brilliant to figure out that the experience and the lifestyle that they were forced to live was not something they would choose and you quickly saw that once the the wall was removed how quickly the whole country and, and the east in general but I, I remember going from west to East Berlin soon after the wall came down and the contrast was still very stark, but a few years later that you really had to look to see where that wall had, had existed. It was, it was really amazing. I think, uh, I think about the, the cars that they had, the Trabant, which was disastrous. These cars were, again, so many decades old and and yet people would wait on lists for years with for the privilege of buying these two cycle engine cars that rarely ran and, and I liken it to what we what too many kids have experienced here and that is being assigned to places to learn that simply aren't working for them for whatever reason, whether they learn differently, whether they don't have an effective teacher. There's a, a whole host of reasons, but the reality is they are stuck and they don't have an option because they can't move somewhere where else. They don't have the resources to move to a better school or a better district, and they don't have the resources to pay tuition to choose a school that may align better with their values. And so my advocacy has been for all those families that don't have that choice and that are in, in too many cases stuck behind a wall. 
and arguing that they need to have the same kind of power that those who are wealthy and, and well-connected. Uh, we, we spend a lot on kids' education every year, an average of $12,000 a student. The most recent Nations Report card, the NAEP, the results this year were very much the same as the results two years ago and very much the same as the results two years before that and before that. So since the early 1990s, achievement levels haven't gone up measurably for any student across the country. And we've spent over a trillion dollars at the federal level alone just to try to close that achievement gap between those at the highest end of the spectrum performance-wise or achievement-wise and those at the lowest levels of achievement. Not only have they not narrowed a little bit, even one little bit, in many cases, some of the measures they've actually widened. And for students at the upper end of the, the achievement spectrum, those, have, those achievement levels have plateaued. And we can't, we can't stand for that as a nation. Um, we're giving up on too many kids and we're frankly giving up on our future if we don't take this seriously and do something dramatically different. And you've been listening to Betsy DeVos, and here she is telling her backstory. We love telling the backstory of people, places, things, because we can sometimes think we know something, but we don't. We've just not heard the rest of the story. And by the way, two profound things that happened in her life, losing her dad young, and my goodness, that's just always tough. It's a shock. It's a trauma. We know we're going to lose our parents, but we're always hoping for the longest possible relationship. And then her experience going to Berlin and then to East Berlin, studying German as a college student and seeing the looks in people's faces. No color is what she remembers. Everything was gray and brown and drab, including the clothes. And she knew that, well, people couldn't speak their mind freely there. And the great product that came from East Germany was the wretched car, the Trevant. No one in the world wanted this car. And the people of East Germany had to wait in line for the privilege of driving a car that didn't work. And walls, well, Betsy DeVos has been working on walls ever since because, well, the wall fell down in East Germany, but there are walls all over the place, folks, and in our neighborhoods in this country. And when we come back, more of the rest of the story of Betsy DeVos's story, more of the backstory here on Our American Story. And we continue here with Our American Stories and the backstory of America's Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. A newspaper article that I, I read, actually, so this young man had been featured in their community newspaper as a high-performing graduate of his class. And so his, you know, his father was congratulating him and asked him to read the newspaper article and the young man couldn't read it. And the father was appalled and said, how could you, how could you be graduating from high school and not be able to read this newspaper article? 
And so he took his son along with the article into the principal and said, son, you know, read this. And he clearly couldn't. And the father said, how in the world could you ever graduate a child who can't read? And it, to me, that was just a, an appalling story that represents statistics far beyond that. We know that there are kids today who are grad, graduating from high school and yet can't read and can't do math, can't perform, can't, you know, have not achieved what a high school graduate really should be. It, it, it's, it's, it's just a crime that they are doing what the school has asked of them and yet they haven't achieved. It's, it, 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 it can't continue to happen. And I pointed out to the secretary that her eyes started to tear up telling this story. I can't imagine being in that position as a parent or as a student, frankly, having done, and perf- done all the work that was required and yet the expectations were not anywhere close to what they should have been. Two out of three eighth graders can't read or do math at the level you would expect they would in eighth grade. Two-thirds. I think that's pretty much all you need to know about how well students are doing. Uh, Compared to other countries in the world, we continue to muddle along. We're not the top ten in anything. And, you know, the last piece of results, the ones that I cited often, we were 24th in reading, 25th in science, and 40th in math. The most recent ones, we've moved around numbers a little bit, but it's not because we've been doing better. It's because a couple of other countries have done worse. But there are nations that are passing us up that you look at and say, how can that be? And yet we spend, we're the second highest spending nation in the world in terms of what we invest in education. If you envision those resources basically affixing to a child in a backpack to go to wherever that student can learn and wants to learn. If, uh, if they want to learn at a, a charter school for a couple of classes and online for a couple of classes and perhaps at their assigned school for a class and maybe a, a private faith-based school for another class or two, they should be able to do that. And in a robust and meaningful way, I think we'd quickly see different kinds of results. I know that kids who today aren't achieving will achieve with that kind of freedom. Education Freedom Scholarships is a proposal from the federal level to establish a $5 billion tax credit that individuals and companies can contribute to scholarship granting organizations. Those are the vehicles to receive these contributions voluntarily. States would voluntarily participate and would expand or create programs in their states to grant families and students scholarships to choose the right fit for their child's K-12 education. And we have encouraged people to think very broadly about what that can look like. There's all kinds of ways to learn. 
validity and importance of multiple pathways to a successful adult life. We need to expand apprenticeship opportunities, early, early college and dual enrollment opportunities. We need to expand opportunities for families to find the fit that aligns with their family's values. There's no limit to what states could do and create on behalf of the families that they serve. And I think parents are ready to speak up even more loudly about the necessity of this for their kids. Secretary DeVos has been involved in education far before this job, including weekly mentoring underprivileged students with a ministry called Kids Hope USA. I, I was um, essentially on an advisory board for the organization, and I, I thought the concept was a great one. But when I started getting involved in an advisory board capacity, I thought, I can't, I can't really do this without actually practicing what we're trying to promote here. So that's when I decided, well, I, I actually got it introduced through our church. So it's a, it's a program that uh, partners local public elementary schools with local churches. And the leadership of the school says, please, we want you to come in. We, we want uh, adult mentors to come and, and work with and meet with our most vulnerable students. I mentored two young uh, girls at Burton Elementary School in Grand Rapids, starting in second grade with one of them. And I mentored her through, well, essentially through high school. Um, I, I know she she took a while to really open up and to warm up, I think because she was afraid that I was not going to come back. And once we, once it was clear that, yes, I was going to be there for her, we had, uh, it, it turned into a really good and um, very positive time and relationship. And then the second one started in first grade, and she is now, I still get together with her regularly. She's now a sophomore in college. She says she would, she probably never would have completed high school if it were not for our having met that many years ago and my continued urging and encouraging her to pursue her best. And both of them, both of the girls that I've mentored, I think have benefited greatly, as have I personally through the experience. It's allowed me to really know and understand some of her and her family's challenges, as well as the other young lady I mentored. Um, it really helped open my eyes to a lot of things that I wouldn't have known or experienced if not for that opportunity. And you've been listening to Betsy DeVos, The Backstory. And by the way, anybody you might suggest, a town, an item, a person, if you have some insight, send it to ouramericannetwork.org. Alex is working on this, and it's just a great idea. And the other thing, we know and learned that the father's early death, the visit to the Berlin Wall, had a big effect. But that high school graduate who couldn't read, that one really got to her. And not just the kid, the father. And how helpless and how angry you must be when you discover something like that. And that it was lowered expectations. That was it, period. It lowered expectations. And the fact is we are muddling through, 
and that we spend the second most amount of money in the world and aren't the top 10 in anything means that maybe it might be a good idea to affix all of the resources we spend on kids and parents and let them choose how to spend money. By the way, I'm the product of a public school teacher who became a coach and became a mentor to many and a superintendent of schools and never, ever wanted anything but choice for the kids. Never fought the idea of choice. Never saw it as stealing resources from the schools. Because he knew that many of the parents who chose the school that he ran could do so because they had the means. And he wanted that to be for everybody. And so there are more people that I think are coming to agree with this. And Betsy DeVos has spent her life on education and will continue to, I'm sure. The backstory, the life of Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, here on Our American Story. Where are you? We got some work to do now. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when looking back through animation history, there are very few cartoons with as devoted a following as Scooby-Doo in all of our history stories. And that's everything from the arts to sports and, well, of course, history history. All of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Here's Greg Hengler with the rest of the story. Nineteen sixty-nine, America was approaching its fourteenth year fighting in Vietnam. A serial killer calling himself the Zodiac terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area with cryptic letters. Actress Sharon Tate and four others were brutally murdered at the hands of Charles Manson and his counterculture family of so-called flower children. With all this happening, the song topping the charts was this. Sugar. Sugar Sugar was originally recorded by the fictional garage band The Archies, spawned from the cartoon series The Archies, which itself was based on the long-running comic book series. This version reached number one in the U.S. on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1969 and remained there for four weeks. It was the tail end of animation's golden age and the early years of television animation in particular. Parent advocacy groups like the now-defunct Action for Children's Television were pressuring television networks to drop violent action-adventure Saturday morning cartoons like The Herculoids. Fred Silverman, the head executive in charge of children's animation at CBS, sought new programming that would keep his Saturday morning block afloat while simultaneously keeping parental watchdogs off his back. The solution was to hopefully expand upon the massive success CBS found with the Archie show. So, Silverman contacted William Hanna and Joseph Barbera to develop a show in the Archie mold. Hanna-Barbera Productions were early pioneers in TV animation, 
having created shows like Tom and Jerry, Yogi Bear, The Smurfs, The Jetsons, and America's first primetime animated series, The Flintstones. Just keep your eye on the ball, Bonnie boy. The new Archie Style show was initially called House of Mystery that would feature a teenage rock band and would solve mysteries in between gigs. Iwao Takamoto, an animation vet who got his start at Disney in the 40s, was assigned as designer of the project. From here, the series took shape as Mysteries 5. Much like the Archies, the band was also joined by a dog named Too Much, who played the bongos. Designer Takamoto, who had previously designed Astro from the Jetsons, took particular care in crafting Too Much by consulting one of his workmates a breeder of Great Danes. But after studying these prize-winning Great Danes, Takamoto ignored their signature characteristics, making too much bow-legged, with a sloped back and a double chin. When the show was finally pitched to CBS, the band was phased out, the name of the leader of the group, Ronnie, was changed to Fred after a subtle suggestion from Fred Silverman, an easily frightened and always hungry talking dog too much was renamed Scooby-Doo. Inspiration for his new name came while Fred Silverman listened to Sinatra's Strangers in the Night on a cross-country flight. CBS ordered 17 episodes and the show was introduced to generations of children on September 13, 1969 as Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Just a few weeks before Sesame Street premiered. What's remarkable about Scoob's first episode is that it established everything that the franchise would be known for, from the plot structure to the visuals, making each episode feel unique yet familiar by inserting different monsters, settings, gags, etc. Let's take a deep dive into this mystery, getting some help from the gang who created the show. Jinkies! Jeepers! Zoinks! Come on, gang! Let's split up and look for more clues. Quick, do something, Scoob. (laughs) Here's the voice of Scooby-Doo, Don Messick. Well, in many cases, they're much younger children who don't understand that there are real people behind the character voices. And so usually they're kind of excited to, to learn that that's how the magic comes about. Here's animation historian Mark Evaner. Don Messick did the voice of Scooby-Doo originated, and Don was just brilliant at breathing life to that character. Here's the voice of the snack-loving beatnik Shaggy, legendary disc jockey Casey Kasem. Well, I think Don got into the psyche of an animal that was very much like Scooby-Doo. That dog was alive, and it was was a being, a human being. And he just invested that character with so much personality and made him so funny that it's impossible not to love him. Do I get a Scooby Snack? We'll look for one after we're off the camera here. Uh, okay. <laughs> Scooby Dooby Doo. I just got the idea for a trap that'll solve this mystery. Listen. Here's the voice of the confident all American ascot wearing Fred, Frank Welker. I would have to describe Fred as being uh, the guy in the group who has a license. And that's why the other kids have him around, so he can drive the mystery machine. Hang on, gang! 
The way that I got the part for Freddy, I was doing a stand-up routine, and within this routine, I did like a dog and cat fight, a lot of, you know, and this executive said, you know, we're doing a show called Scooby-Doo, and there's a dog, why don't you come in and audition for Scooby-Doo? And I said, great. So I went over there and I got the script and I saw Shaggy. This is me, funny character. You know, and I'm always playing the straight guys. And so I sit down and meet Casey and he's just fantastic. I said, well, what part are you reading for? And he says, oh, I'm reading for Shaggy and I want to read for Freddy. The character I wanted to do was Fred. And so they said, no, we, we'd like you to read the, the other character, Shaggy. I said, oh, okay, well, uh, what is it you want? And uh, he said, well, come up with something. And uh, what I came up with was, Scoobo, buddy, old friend, old pal, it's me, <laughs> your friend Shaggy. <laughs> like what? My favorite. A double, triple decker sardine and marshmallow fudge sandwich. Open the mouth, between the gums. Look out, stomach, here it comes. They called me back three times, and a third time, Apparently they, they, uh, they saw what they liked, and so they, they hired me. Well, gang, I guess that wraps up another mystery. Here's the voice of the bespeckled bookish Velma, Nicole Jaffe. My glasses! I can't see without my glasses. It was not my real voice, but it wasn't that far away. Velma lisps, I lisp. Velma has kind of a slightly kooky voice. I guess my voice is slightly kooky. I think my character set a good example for girls. They didn't have to follow around. They could lead. They could have the ideas. That's what I always liked about my character. Here's the voice of the attractive, accident-prone Daphne, Heather North. That's your cue, Daph. Right. Oh, no. My finger's stuck in the keys. I can't work the trick. Danger-prone Daphne did it again. Danger-prone Daphne. Yeah. Wait! Help me! The girl that had played Daphne for a short period of time had left and gone to New York to get married. Nicole Jaffe, David, was my roommate and said, get in here. They're looking for Daphne. You can do Daphne. Jeepers! I'm doing Velma. We could, we could do this together. This would be great fun. And I auditioned and got the part. And that was my first, really my first job as an agent, was getting her this. Together, these characters formed Mystery Inc. and embarked on countless mysteries to seek out the truth in their van dubbed The Mystery Machine. Predictably, the monsters always turned out to be humans in disguise. And I'd have done it, too, if you kids hadn't come along. And contrary to popular belief, the phrase meddling kids is never mentioned until episode 20 during season two. And it would have been mine if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. But even then, it was not muttered with much consistency, only being said twice in the original series. After season one of Scooby-Doo, the series was a rating smash hit. Up to 65% of the Saturday morning audience was tuning in to Scooby-Doo, and its popularity hasn't slowed down to this day. There have been many spin-offs, blockbuster movies, and merchandising, but the heart of the characters has remained. And thanks to reruns, a new generation of kids get to enjoy Scoob in the game as they solve their mysteries. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Where are you? And great job as always, Greg, and that happens to be Greg's favorite cartoon. 
And he still loves it. And we all love our favorites. Scooby-Doo's story here on Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, always remember that because of our Constitution and because of the patent right, intellectual property is possible in this great country for artists to have their rights secured in ideas like Scooby-Doo, Straight to Bob Dylan, our greatest movies, all of our arts and culture, straight from our Constitution. This is Our American Stories. If we can count on you, Scooby-Doo, I know we'll catch that villain. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we have one of our regular features, the Relationship Hour, which is brought to us by Communio and told by J.P. DeGans. Yvonne and Richard Rice share their story with us today. Here's J.P. Yvonne and Richard are extraordinary people who came from troubled childhood homes. Yvonne's mother was married five different times. Her father was husband number four. Yvonne spent much of her childhood with her dad to escape some of the chaos in her mother's home. But her dad had his own struggles. He had agoraphobia, an anxiety disorder that causes one to avoid places that might cause panic or embarrassment. So many with this condition live isolated lives, staying home as much as possible. Growing up in such a household, Yvonne spent a lot of time by herself. Really what I remember the most about my childhood was loneliness. I was very lonely and I was very depressed. I didn't know that was the word back then was depressed, but I was very depressed. And um, I ended up going uh, around the age of 15, going and living with my mom in Connecticut. And there was um, a, a really horrible thing happened and I was attacked and hurt. And I ended up then moving back to Jacksonville. And it made my dad's mental illness of being scared to go out and being scared that anything would ever happen to me worse. And um, at that time, um, there was a new girls' school here in Jacksonville, and I started going there. I uh, you know, had a lot of fear because of the attack, and I didn't want to go to a school where there were boys and girls. And um, this school was for girls who were at risk, and it was wonderful for me. It ended up being such a wonderful experience. Um, these women, I'm still friends with some of them today. Uh, matter of fact, I'm going to see one next week, and this is 20, you know, 30 years. Oh my gosh, 30 years later, uh, maybe 32 years later. Oh my word, how old am I? So, um, anyways, but these ladies just spoke into me, and I remember the first time um, someone said to me, "Yvonne, you are so smart," and I didn't know I was smart. 
Um, one lady uh, in particular, I remember her saying, you are so pretty. And I had not really heard those words before. And so it was just these ladies spoken to me. And that's really where I started finding out who Yvonne is. Um, who Yvonne is broken. Um, you know, I was as low as you could get uh, because of the attack. And so they told me based upon um, my school situation that it would take me about five years to complete high school. And I ended up completing high school in six months. Um, because when you have people who believe in you, you exceed. Richard's upbringing had its own set of challenges. His dad wasn't around much, and at the age of nine, his mother passed away. We moved, uh, the three youngest, my younger brother, my older sister, we moved down south with my grandmother, and she, she raised us. Although she was an alcoholic, um, and she was a type of alcoholic when she drank, she would get angry and that angry, uh, anger would toward, turn usually towards me because I was the oldest male and um, you know, for whatever reason, she seemed to want to vent on me and blame me for all the problems or whatever. But um, I can see the good you know, out of her. She, was, she put us in a, a, a good Christian school and she had to pay for that and all she had was her, um, she worked for a, uh, a telephone uh, company for many years, and that was she was living on her retirement. She did get money, of course, from the Social Security for us, but she didn't have to put us in a, uh, so, you know, I feel there was providential uh, ways in there that God was, uh, has used her. Uh, so anyway, she put, she put us in there, and that's where I learned about God and, uh, as a young person. But, um, you know, uh, I was pretty much involved in sports, normal, you know, kid as far as played tennis, played uh, baseball, and uh, enjoyed that. And But as, as I got older, she would um, almost like, um, like emotional or physical, uh, it was more of a... a pull you down type. When she'd correct you, it was more of a, uh, that type of uh, abuse. But um, as I got older, you know, I learned to stand up and, you know, say, look, this, this ain't right. You know, we're not, I'm not going to sit here and listen to this all day, you know, for, you know, whatever. It felt like all day, but usually it was anywhere from 10 minutes to 30 minutes, and that was a long time. And um, usually after that, you had to, uh, you know, go in your room. So Richard's being, I'll just jump in here. Um, he's probably downplaying the abuse more and not being as honest about it. It was horrible. And she beat him with a tennis racket. And then, she, and then he had to stay in the room for long periods of time without food. And she was a very cruel woman. And even though she did good of sending them to school at a private school, um, there was a lot of cruelty. Also, um, his father um, killed himself about a year after his mom died. His mom died tragically and his dad died tragically. His mom was leaving a bar and she was drunk. The um, bartender 
had told her, Mary, can't, I'm not going to serve you anymore. You've had too much to drink. And um, she walked out of a bar drunk and walked right in front of a bus. And then dad, a year later, who was also an alcoholic, um, shoots himself and ends his life. Lots of um, addiction, alcoholism on that side of the family. You're listening to Yvonne and Richard's story, and we tell you all the time, marriage is two separate people with two separate walks coming together, strangers sometimes to themselves, let alone to each other, and all the trauma and baggage that comes along. Our relationship hour story continues. Yvonne and Richards here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories. We're listening to the story of Yvonne and Rich, brought to us by Communio, and they work hard to heal broken marriages and are remarkable at it. Go to communio.org to learn more and to J.P. DeGance's organization. And by the way, he's bringing us all of these stories. We left off learning about Rich and Yvonne's difficult childhoods, the lives they led before they met. Let's get back to the story. Their childhoods were tough, but Richard and Yvonne both came to know the Lord and started spending time together at Bible study. Anyway, so she gets up and she goes to the refrigerator and I'm like, oh, now here's my move right here. So so I run around the other side and I said, hey, I'm Richard. And she said, oh, I'm Yvonne. I said, oh, I know who you are. I said, my my brother, y'all went out last week. And uh, so she's like, yeah, yeah. So, um... So right then, you know, I could, I could you know, feel the, the, the good vibes and everything going on. You know, it was like, uh, she might be, you know, worth checking out. You know what I mean? So, um, so then we did a few things with the church as far as uh, little things here and there. But then I could feel it in my heart. I was like, man, I really got to ask this girl out. So I was thinking, I don't want to be rejected. You know, like most men, you don't want to be rejected. So I was like, I'm going to ask her to something, you know, godly or spiritual then she's going to feel bad because she didn't go although she she might want to reject me but she can't reject god so some way uh you know i had been going to this uh city rescue uh mission helping out there and so i was like i'm gonna ask her to go to that and uh so then i said uh can you wait for me outside in the parking lot you know i'm paying my bill and and she was with her friend and i was like i gotta get her friend away from her because i don't want to ask her and her reject me right in front of her friend so some way I don't know I was in the parking lot with her and I said hey I'm going to this um, uh, rescue mission and you know I'll be talking and you know we can uh, you know hang out some if you want you'd like to go with me and she said yeah that'd be nice so um, once I once we, we got to the rescue mission and I started sharing I was like I'm giving my testimony like I'm an event like I'm wanting someone to come alongside me which is kind of weird because I usually just give my testimony I, 
I share straight up, you know, how God, but it, I could feel it, I could sense it in her heart that it was almost like God was doing this, putting all this together, and I was like, oh, this is neat. It was almost effortless too, you know what I mean? It was like, it was like, it was just coming together the way, the way it all was meant to be. Richard and Yvonne were soon married, and they were ready for their happily ever after. But considering how much they had each been through growing up, it's not surprising that they brought their own traumas, their own baggage, and their own ways of dealing with things into their marriage. Richard saw himself as the man of the house and expected Yvonne to obey. Yvonne was finding her footing in the world after an isolated childhood with her loving but mentally ill father. And these, in so many ways, these newlyweds were really opposites. In the early years, it was really hard because I thought, well, if you want to run the roost so bad, why am I working? You know, and he struggled for some years with work, not, not really being able to bring home. I was the, the um, provider back then, and that was hard for him. I know it really hurt, you know, hard. It's hard when men go through that transition. Um, and it was probably, that was probably one of the, I'd say, the hardest times of our marriage. Um, because, you know, you start questioning, why am I with this person? Really, I mean, why am I? And Richard and I have really discussed that even in the last few years. And in our heart of hearts, it's that we truly choose to be here. Um, we don't have to be here. We are so individual. Like, I don't say, oh, he's my rock. He is not my rock. <laughs> I'm not his rock. You know, Jesus truly is our rock. But what we, we choose to be here, I want his companionship. I love um, intellectually how we can talk about the Lord and how he sees things differently than I do. Also, I just like to talk to him about other things. I'll tell him about a situation I have with a girlfriend or a situation at work and just to hear his point of view because he thinks differently than I do. And I have learned to appreciate that and not let that be um, you know, a sense of contention. While they clearly appreciate their differences, these very differences can also be a source of tension. When it comes to showing love through gifts, Yvonne wants beautiful things like flowers. Richard has gone with a bit more practical approach. So, you know, he just didn't have any of this modeled for him um, at all. Now, I didn't have it modeled for me either. However, it's in me to be a gift giver and to be attuned to holidays and just, you know, I'm real intentional. So I let him know, I said, let me tell you something right now, buddy, you better get me a gift and I'm going to tell you the, the, the times I need gifts for. Well, he did okay. I mean, he did the best he could. He would get really practical stuff. One time you got me a can opener. You got me a can opener. I mean, I'm just thinking right now I should have left you just for that. So, and an umbrella. An umbrella, anyways, but those are those romantic gifts. Clearly, these two very different people experienced some conflict in the early years of their marriage, but neither knew what was to come. Having had such difficult childhoods themselves, Richard and Yvonne had both hoped that if they raised their kids with all the love and structure they wished they could have had, everything would turn out great. However, from an extremely young age, 
their son Hunter showed signs of an addictive personality. The first time our son took codeine, he was actually nine. He was on a cough syrup with codeine because he has asthma and he didn't like the taste of it. And after I gave him his cough syrup about 45 minutes later, he came back and asked for more. And I said, why would you want more? It tastes horrible. And um, I never thought about the feeling he was getting. And he said, I want more because it makes my brain feel ooh so good. And I remember going, oh my gosh, you know, because codeine doesn't do that to me. Um, but I don't like any, um, drugs like that. I don't, I'm one, Richard and I both, we don't take, like when the doctor gives you hydrocodone or Oxycontin or anything for any surgeries, we're, we're just not those people, you know, that want that. And, but for our son, his brain lights up. And so, you know, you don't make um, an opiate addict. You really are born that way to have that predisposition. And so, you know, we've had, now that I've learned that, I actually, uh, have a lot of mercy and grace towards our son and I tell him I'm like Hunter you know you didn't ask for this you were given this brain that struggles with this but you do have a responsibility to it I'm um, just like I didn't ask for the autoimmune problem that I struggle with and yet I have a responsibility to treat it or not today Hunter's choosing to treat um, his drug addiction with drugs instead of recovery um, over the next few years, you know, we would see a little bit of moodiness. Um, definitely saw now what I call the attic brain, where there was this intense um, focus, whether it's on a video game or on a TV show or on music, like intense and could not do anything else at that time. However, very brilliant. Um, Hunter is a gifted guitarist. Um, really just a gift given from God because we don't have those abilities and he's never been trained. And so we saw this gifting in him and we knew that that part of his brain, um, you know, that eclectic side was in full force. So we accepted that, you know, he was different. He was musically inclined. We were not. Um, so when he first, you know, started going through this little, it seemed like a depression, we thought that some of it might just be normal. He's 14, you know, hormones kicking in. Um, but then we found out that he had tried pot and he had smoked pot at church of all things. And so um, the thing was, is that when he uh, smoked pot, it just ended up lighting up his brain where it wasn't like, oh, well, I just want to smoke pot now. It feels good. It's what else is out there. So it was a gateway drug for him. And for some it is, and for many it isn't. But my goodness, for Hunter, the parents know best about these things. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about this journey, this marriage journey between Yvonne and Rich, and now including their son Hunter, an addict, who, as we learn didn't want to treat his addiction with anything but more drugs and not recovery and not treatment. And what a, what a struggling son can do to a marriage, what a family member can do to break cracks in a marriage. Well, we're going to learn more about that here on our Relationship Hour. We continue with Yvonne and Rich's story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our relationship hour here on Our American Stories. And today we have the story of Yvonne and Rich and their journey as a couple. The Rices learned that their son from a young age had an addictive personality. As it continued to manifest itself, they struggled to know what to do. And my goodness, this is happening in families across America and how this kind of thing tests and can often break a marriage. Let's return to the story. As Hunter got older, his dabbling with drugs turned into a spiraling addiction, something that took over Hunter's life and his parents' lives. When I look back on it, it was tripping up the doctors that he came from such a good home. They really needed something to be wrong, and there wasn't. You know, he, they kept thinking he had some trauma, and he was like, no, no trauma, I just want to get high. Like, he was real honest with them. I have to appreciate his honesty. He said, no, my parents are great, but man, I want to get stoned, and I want, you know. And so it was like, oh my goodness. So at 15, he goes to his first treatment center. And even at 15, as an adolescent, you can leave treatment centers. They cannot lock you down. And so after a few days, he left the treatment center and we went out looking for him. And little did we know that that was just gonna be one of the first times um, I'm gonna cry. (laughs) It was just, one of the first times that we would go out looking for him. I remember thinking when I have kids that the um, the worst thing that could ever happen is not knowing where your kid is. I don't know that death is as bad as just not knowing if they're okay, if they're being hurt or tormented or... And so I remember driving up and down the street when we were looking for him and just being terrified. And then when we saw him, we weren't even mad at him for leaving the treatment center. We were so thankful that he was okay. Um, We still didn't understand at that time how severe, Hunter's been severe from day one, but we just didn't know what it was. And so we homeschooled during that time. That was gonna be the only way to get him through school. And he did fine with homeschooling. we did some over. Uh, we did some medications through the psychiatrist. None were a good idea. None of them. I had to lock up the medications in my bedroom. I would wake up in the middle of the night to Hunter in our bedroom looking for the medicine. Um, it was just constant stuff like that. I mean, I think even some of it I've blocked out. And so then um, at 18, the holidays are always tough for some reason for addicts. And um, at 18, we had to ask him to leave because it was just, and we are not those people, but um, he was just so out of control and causing such chaos in the home that um, my daughter and I went to church and Richard stayed here and waited for Hunter to come home on his birthday. It was on a Wednesday. And he asked Hunter, he said, Hunter, you gotta pack up your stuff and leave because you keep doing stuff in our home that's not okay. And he was putting us at risk. And that was really hard and I'm really proud of Richard to do it. I didn't have the guts back then to do it. I could do it now, but not back then. And so our son ended up um, just, you know, going to a friend's house and doing that kind of thing. But then he ended up going to a halfway house. And two months later, he graduated from high school, which we homeschooled through our church. 
After graduating from high school, Hunter was in and out of jail, halfway houses, and treatment centers. One day after going missing, Hunter called his parents. And he said, Mom, I, I need some help. I'm really bad. And um, so that's when heroin had, I don't know how long heroin had been in the picture, but it was really in the picture at that time. And when we went and um, got him, got up with them, he was very skinny and he was really sick. And at that time, we sent him out of state to a place. And I remember it was right before the holidays. And I thought, um, those Norman Rockwell paintings, you know, of the perfect Christmas. Like my family just wasn't turning out like I thought it should. And Hunter wouldn't be here. But I remember someone telling me that if I give him up in these hard times, that maybe I can have him in the future. You know, give him, I know it's hard right now, he's young, but you know, it's a lot easier to send him off out of state right before Christmas than to bury him. So we did it. Um, we did expect a miracle. We wanted him to come back changed. And that's not our story. It, there wasn't much change at all. And um, he came back and then just within a week was in another treatment facility in North Carolina. Hunter claimed to be doing better, so they went to go visit him in North Carolina. But when they got there, they realized he really wasn't doing any better. And soon, Yvonne understood the manipulation aspect of addicts through a support program for families. And um, I learned that if his mouth, well, how I knew he was lying is his lips were moving, you know, and I thought, oh, that's not nice. But it was true that it was just when he was in the addict brain, when he was letting that rule him, lies and manipulation. So um, within a few more years, I mean, he had just been hospitalized and jail and I and let me tell you about jail I never ever thought we would have a child that go, that went to jail and I could you can call it spiritual pride and call it pride I don't care what it was my children weren't going to jail maybe your children were going to jail but not my child and I mean we did things we did bible study in our house with our kids and we did all these great things never had alcohol in our home like we were the teetotalers and yet we're standing in line with some people who weren't great parents Right? I mean, we were standing in line with people who themselves look like they just got out of prison. Like, I'm just saying. So it has shocked me in the past if a friend ever called me and said their child was in jail. I'd be like, what? You know, and now I'm like, oh, good. Oh, it's such an answer to prayer, you know, because usually it's an addict and we need them to get stabilized. That stability, at least in Hunter's case so far, has not lasted. He has overdosed many times and one early overdose sticks out in his parents' memories. Yvonne called me and said, I think Hunter's gotten into something and I had some medicine from my back. It was a cream and he mixed something together. And so when I came home, he's sitting here on the couch and I'm like, what's wrong? And he's kind of like passing out. And I'm like, this is crazy. And then he's like, I felt like he's just barely breathing and I'm like, Yvonne's like, we need to call uh, 911 because I tried to shake him and try to wake him up. He wouldn't wake up. And so we um, 
we called the police and they came in here and they, they actually hit him in his chest, tried to wake him up and he would not wake up. And so um, they got the ambulance in here and he started coming to some and they just said, oh, we've got to take him to the hospital, you know, because this is the first time I've ever seen, you know, Hunter this bad, you know, my mind, um, you know, it's starting to take a toll on his body and mind and everything. And so they took him to the hospital and uh, I remember the doctor was tell, telling us, look, you have a drug addict for a son. That's the first time, you know, I've ever heard, you know, it was like, oh, those words are so hurtful and strong and powerful. And so I was like, wow, Hunter, you know, you really have. So eventually he, they, they either gave him something, Narcan or something to, to get him out of it. And he started getting better. Uh, but that was the reality when it came into our home, you know, strong. We knew it was, it's always been around and we seemed somewhat high, but we, when he went out like that, you know, almost unconscious, or he was unconscious, um, that's when it kind of really brought home reality that, look, this boy is in it deep. And you're listening to Rich and Yvonne and the effect that this struggling son, this addict son, is going to have on their relationship we're going to learn more about in the next segment. So when we come back, more of this remarkable story our relationship hour, Yvonne and Rich's story, thanks to Communio, here on Our American Stories. continue here on our American stories and Richard and Yvonne's story, our relationship hour, and we deal with, well, real life marriages and real life problems here on this show and real life stories, because that's what you've come to expect. Now we return to J.P. DeGantz for the rest of the story. Richard and Yvonne were just telling us about the time their son Hunter overdosed in their home. Here again is Yvonne. He had eaten a half a cup of this back cream that had morphine in it. And so to know that he was that desperate to get high, that there was nothing in our house. We didn't even have NyQuil in here anymore. And yet he found that back cream. We had never even thought about that back cream. When, we, when the ambulance took him to the hospital, the doctor actually called him a junkie. And I just remember going, what? And she said, only three things happen to a junkie. You get institutionalized, you go to prison, or you die. And I said, no, ma'am, there's another one, and that's or you recover. And, you know, it really upset me. And our daughter was there. She was young. And to hear, you know, your brother's a junkie, like that was so upsetting. And, you know, this is a kid who went to summer camp at church. I mean, he did all the church stuff like everyone else. He was homeschooled. Um, he knew. He knows the Bible. He knows the scriptures. And yet none of that was going to change his brain chemistry. A couple of months ago, I told Richard, 
I can't have him on the street anymore. It's driving me crazy that he's out there, that I don't know where he's at. Um, he's, he doesn't look like the pictures here. You know, he's got a tooth missing. He's very skinny. Um, sometimes he has sores on him or a rash. Um, his liver has suffered greatly. And when we saw him in the hospital um, in July, I think it was in August, he was in the hospital a lot, back to back. He, our son was found like just passed out in front of someone's front lawn, discolored because of the drugs in his system. He was then found a week later in a um, grocery store parking lot, again, not breathing, and they brought him back to life. He was found again a week later. I mean, it just, it March and this summer was really tough because it was just happening over and over. And there was a, there's been times here lately that we've asked God to just take because he's suffering so bad and we are too and but that hasn't happened he's still here and um it's just it's hard because we try to go on about our day like everything's okay but it's playing it back in my head every time i i get a text or i get a phone call or if the police drive by real slow i feel like that's it this is it we have prepared um, for, to know that we might have to bury our son. We've talked about it. We have a plan in place because we have a terminally ill kid, you know, who can't seem to get it together. The life of an addict becomes a cycle. Hunter has been in and out of rehab or jail some 50 times in the last few years. Richard and Yvonne try to be there for Hunter when he asks for help. Talked with him some, and then I talked with Yvonne and I talked, and we said, well, yeah, he's at that point again where he's wanting help, so we got him into another facility, uh, and, you know, he, within a few, few months, he got recharged, and he's back out there again, and there's nothing we can do as far as, you know, changing that. Uh, I, I'm more of a, you know, just a standard father that just says, you know, you're gonna do it until you get tired of it. And Yvonne's, you know, she's more of a, want to be active and involved in it. And I'm like, Yvonne, this is just, you know, hurts me, it hurts you, you know, why are you, you know, you gotta to learn to step back, you know, you sure call him, talk to him, and you know, maybe go to lunch with him now and then, but you know, you're only hurting yourself and, and you're trying to push Hunter to be something he's not, he's, you're making him angry, you're making him upset. And these are all my logical things that are coming to my mind. I also have to have grace because she has to handle it the way she wants to and the way she's going to, but I can't let her go but so far. The ups and downs of life with an addict can cause a tremendous amount of emotional stress on their loved ones, both in terms of the terrible things they see and the unknown things they fear. Such trials can drive the couple apart or it can bring them closer together. 
Richard and Yvonne, as different as they are, have chosen to turn towards each other. It's really been intense for about four or five years now. And so Richard now though was like, wow, I have to be more involved because Yvonne's not making it, Yvonne's falling apart. And so during, during that time, he though had to pull away a little bit just to protect himself. And he doesn't always do it well or right. And so I remember just coming and talking to him and saying, look, either it's okay that we deal with it differently, but we're either on the same page or this isn't gonna work because I am not going through this life alone. I am not going to the hospital again by myself or jail or whatever it is. And, and you know, we'll get on the same page of how, like, let's sit down and talk about it when it happens. Cause see, these are traumatic events. Like we get a call from the hospital. We don't get to say, oh, well, Saturday night Hunter's gonna be in the hospital. I mean, this always happens when you have other stuff going on. And Richard said, yes, I'll be there. And I said, I need you there for me. This is what I need. And he said, yes, I'll be there. Well, what was interesting is just a few days later, he got the opportunity to be there because Hunter was in the hospital and we both went. And you know, I think too, he got to see, oh my gosh, Yvonne's been doing this a long time. No wonder she's worn out. Like I've been doing this from the very beginning. And it's so hard to watch someone in front of you killing themselves and you can't do anything about it, nothing. And I grieve, I grieve terribly. <laughs> nothing has been normal with him. We haven't done anything normal with him in so long. I mean, besides taking to eat, we can't have normal conversations. He doesn't, the addiction won't allow him to care about anybody. When he stopped by the other day because his phone broke. He had lost all of his clothes. He only has one outfit. He was in the backyard with the water hose washing his hair and drinking out of the water hose. And I just thought this shouldn't be. That's my son. <laughs> So I had him come inside and eat and drink. He was so dehydrated. He's probably lost 40 pounds in a month. I just can't believe how fast he can lose that much weight. And uh, I offered him help. I gave him some ideas of how I could help him with a treatment center or a halfway house or even a homeless shelter. And he said, no, mom, I don't want that. So he, I walked him outside as he left on foot. He doesn't drive, he hasn't had a car. He had a truck for two months and that was it. And that was at the beginning of the year. And he drove, he walked away. And as he's walking down the road, he's yelling, He's yelling black, back at me, I love you, mom, you know? And I, and I think, is this the last time I'm ever gonna see him? That's how it is with Hunter. You do feel like this might be the last time. And um, it just really hurts. I mean, it's like a grief that we can't get out of. It's like torment. 
How do Richard and Yvonne continue on in their life and marriage amidst such grief? We're in it for the long haul, you know what I mean? We're, we're committed no matter what, you know, it, it doesn't matter if the world decides they're all gonna go somewhere. And, I mean, I feel like I'm committed, you know, it's, it's not, nothing's gonna stop me. I mean, sure, it hurts and um, you wish you could change it, but at the same time, you know, you try to make the best of it. You know, you, it, it's like we're still going to enjoy life to the point that we can enjoy life with having these disabilities in our life, having a son uh, live and act like that. You've been listening to Yvonne and Richard Rice and the story of their struggles with their son, Hunter, and how they keep it together. There are times lately, Yvonne said, we've asked God just to take him. He's suffering so bad, we are too. And yet these two keep it together. They show each other grace. And all the couple together are teaching us all how to to struggle, how to get through struggles together. Richard and Yvonne's story here on Our American Stories. And you can go to communio.org to find out how to heal marriages, deal with deep and profound marriage problems and issues. This is Our American Stories.